Welcome to Mysteries and Mimosas. My name is Max Sterling, and I'm here with my lovely wife, Aria Sterling. Aria is an expert in victim services and restorative justice. She works extensively with victims of some of the most horrific crimes. As an expert in restorative justice, she helps victims and offenders heal through a victim-offender dialogue where victims talk to their offenders about the impact and experiences they endured as a victim. Restorative justice has proven therapeutic effects on both the victims harmed and the offenders who committed the criminal act. Thank you, Max. I'm happy to be doing this podcast with my husband of 11 years, Max Sterling. Max has over 20 years of law enforcement experience, with almost half of that experience conducting investigations. Max is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the investigative process, criminal justice system, and the investigative processes. We hope our experiences will bring you a different perspective to true crime. We want Mysteries and Mimosas to be victim-centered with a law enforcement perspective. All right, so let's grab your favorite mimosas and let's get into this. So this case is a very popular case from 2013, um, and I like to bring you back to 2013 by asking a few trivia questions of Aria from that year. And then hopefully we have a mimosa recipe for you in each one of our episodes. Um, so, Arya, what would you like first? Do you want to do the mimosa recipe, or do you want uh, to get into the trivia? Let's do the trivia first. Trivia next. first. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, I have three questions for you. Um, I'm going to give you a point for each one you get right, and the points mean nothing. Who performed the 2013 Super Bowl halftime show? Ugh. Do you give me options, or I just have to know that? I just have to know it. This what? is this is tough trivia. Can you even tell me who was playing in 2013 in the yeah. Super Bowl? Yeah. So in 2013, the Ravens defeated the 49ers 34 to 31. It was the first 49ers Super Bowl loss in their franchise history. It was also the first time coaches were brothers. So we had Jim and John Harbaugh as the coaches. Mm-hmm. It was held at Mercedes-Benz Superdome in New Orleans, Louisiana, and it was the first Super Bowl in New Orleans since the Hurricane Katrina in what year? That's not, that's not trivia. Hurricane Katrina was uh, 2005? Good job. Oh, yeah. Yep, 2005. So, knowing that. Okay, that didn't help me no? at all. No? Okay. Darn. I was like Just trying, to, wild guess. trying to pause for time. Um, hmm. I really don't know. Um, can you give me like, what does it start with? What does it start? It starts with a B. Beyonce. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was actually, no, I was actually going to say that. (laughs) I really was. I thought of Beyonce. Okay. Well, Well, if you thought about it, why didn't you say it? I don't know because I get nervous. Could you give me like a half a point or even a quarter point? Nope. Nothing. Nothing Mm, for you. I feel cheated on that. Well. I don't know if I want to continue playing your game. Feel how you like. Okay. Well, we can just skip to the mimosa recipe. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Question number two. I'm looking for the top boy and top girl baby name in 2013. Ooh, okay. Um, now, I will give you a point if you can land in the top five. Okay. So I'm going to say for girl, Emma. Okay. And, and for boy? Uh, Jacob. Okay. So let's start with the boys. The number five is Noah. Okay. Number four is Lucas. Number three is Liam. Oh, I love Liam. That's a good name. Number two is Aiden. How confident are you about, what'd you say? I said Jacob. Yeah, well, I, Jacob. I guess I'm not confident because you didn't even remember what I said. <laughs> Number one was Jackson. 
Oh, it's still at the J. Do I get a quarter point for that? No, no. you don't get nothing. Okay. Um, number five for girl's name. And of course, this is according to babycenter.com. Number five was Mia. Number four is Isabella. Hmm. Number three is Olivia. Number two is Emma. Oh. Good job. Let's see. Wait, hold on. What was number one then in 2013? It's not Lily. No. no. Sophia. Oh, Sophia. Yeah, that's right. All right, so... I'm not doing you get, well on You this. get a half a point. I really don't like to... Fail. Uh, I guess I can give you one point. Yeah, right. yeah, were you half a point? I got in the top five. That was your well, rule. Okay, All right. next question. Next question. All right, question number three. Are you ready? I'm ready. This is my favorite trivia question, and I hope we can do this one as much as possible because you have this uncanny ability to recognize music. And so hopefully I'm not hyping you up too much, but here it goes. That's a lot of pressure. I know. I'm sorry. Oh, man. You're not doing too good today, so my expectations are not very high. Thank you for saying that. Well, it's true. (laughs) I mean, one point out of a possible like eight. Okay. So what was the year and song according to the Billboard Top 100 in 2013? The year and song? Mm-hmm. Give me the song or oh, the, the artist. Oh, the year end song? Is yeah. that what you said? Yep, year okay. end. So the top song, according to Billboard 100 in 2013. If you give me one in the top 10, I'll give you a, another point. Okay. But as you know, my uncanny ability to recognize music is like older music. I'm an That's old okay. soul. I don't know 2013. That's still too new for me. I mean, I would guess it's... A song by Imagine Dragons. That's I mean, that's all I can give you. I don't know. I really don't. Okay, well. Like, I can think back to where I was at that time, and for some reason, like, that's it's not coming to me what songs were popular. Well, though. Imagine Dragons was in the top three, so I guess I'll give you a point for that. Um, Radioactive by Imagine okay. Dragons was yeah. number three. Number two was Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke. And number okay. one song, year-end song, 2013, top 100 Billboard. What, what, what? Poppin' Tags. Nope. What's the name of the song? It's not Poppin' Tags? Nope. Oh, Thrift Shop then. Yeah, bye. Macklemore. Okay. It's too easy for you. Well, once I heard it, but I would have never guessed that. I didn't know it It went to the top to number one. It did. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, year end, so whatever that means. Um, okay, so then I guess we can get uh, moving over to our mimosa recipe, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'll let you go ahead and tell our listeners about our mimosa recipe for today. Okay, so our mimosa recipe for today. This is a simple mimosa recipe, the core ingredient being champagne, of course. I wanted to keep our first mimosa recipe simple to kick things off, so this will be our typical orange juice and champagne mimosa with a half a shot of pineapple-infused vodka, and on the rim we added a pineapple slice. It's delicious. Tasty. Okay. All right. Okay. So I'll go ahead and get into our case today. Um, today we're going to be talking about Bryce Laspisa. So a lot of podcasts and web sleuths have covered Bryce's case, but we're going to get into some details that have been widely misrepresented. For years, we've talked about starting a podcast, and when we started putting everything into motion for this show, we initially wanted to set ourselves apart from all the other true crime podcasts by covering more of the lesser-known cases, but. When you told me to listen to Bryce's case, I noticed a theme where several different shows cast a lot of blame on Bryce's parents, Mike and Karen Lespisa. For that very reason, I decided to reach out to Mike and Karen directly to set the record straight 
and to give them an opportunity to provide answers to some of the content that we've heard. Um, We're not trying to disparage anyone else's show or make anyone look bad, but we want to set the record straight. We now understand it takes a lot of time and effort to put a true crime episode together. It can take hours of research and consume a lot of your free time. So the goal here is not to bash anyone for what they've done, but perhaps help people understand the impact they might have on survivors like Mike and Karen. Okay. Yeah. Well, what do we got? All right, so we'll get into it. Um, So the only information um, that I was able to find while researching Bryce's case tells us Bryce is remembered as charming, charismatic, artistic, and friendly. So I know, Max, when you reached out to Mike and Karen, um, you asked them, you know, which they prefer. Did they want to actually be recorded and answer questions, you know, on the podcast? Or did they prefer to um, write write their answers and kind of email them back to us. Right. And they decided to let us kind of run with it after answering some questions by email. Yeah. So, and and we really appreciate Mike and Karen for um, taking the time um, to do that for us. So in answer to that question, um, the, the question, can you tell us more about who Bryce is and how they remember Bryce, um, both as a kid and a young adult? Um, they told us that they remember Bryce as kind, outgoing, and friendly, his red hair and freckles. He loved amusement parks and roller coasters. He was a very good freehand artist and wanted to design the next Nike gym shoe. His favorite football team was the Dallas Cowboys, even though they're diehard Chicago Bears fans. His favorite foods were steak and mashed potatoes. He played soccer and football, but chose baseball in his high school years. He was a team player and a strong athlete. Um, They actually recently heard from a couple of boys who are now adults that played with him, um, and they remembered him as a great first base and center fielder, and he could really hit the ball. Um, They loved going to all of Bryce's sporting events and rooting on the team. Um, Bryce loved family get-togethers with his cousins, uncles, and aunts. Family gatherings included playing silly games at Christmas for prizes and summer parties that always included many games of cornhole in the backyard. So that kind of gives you a little insight um, into who Bryce was. Yeah, just an all-around all, all great American kid. Yeah, he sounds like a great person. Um, so we'll kind of get into the days leading up to and surrounding um, Bryce's disappearance. So after spending the summer at home with his parents in Laguna Niguel, um, Bryce returned to Sierra College for his sophomore year. Uh, Monday, August 26th, was Bryce's first day of classes. And um, Karen told us that she actually... Uh, spoke with Bryce at 7 p.m. that night on that Monday after his first day of classes. She said the conversation was normal. Um, Bryce talked about his classes and that he was actually going to see his girlfriend Kim on Thursday. So Kim and Bryce met during Bryce's freshman year of college. So they had been dating, you know, since that first year. Mike and Karen said that Kim actually came home or came for a visit to their home during that summer between their freshman uh, freshman and sophomore years of college. And they said that um, the two of them seemed to get along really well, um, and they had fun together. So he spoke to his mom and said he was going to go see Kim that Thursday. But right then, he was actually heading over to hang out with his uh, friend Mark and Mark's girlfriend. Then at midnight, the plan was to go to the local GameStop to pick up the new Madden game. Bryce said they were planning to play the Madden game all night. So the next day, Tuesday, August 27th, um, Karen actually left uh, Bryce a text message in the evening asking how his second day of classes went. Uh, Bryce didn't return his mom's text, which was unlike him. 
Karen said that he always replied, even if it was a bit late. So then that night, Tuesday night, according to Bryce's girlfriend, Kim, um, Bryce was acting a bit strange and telling Kim that he was breaking up with her. Kim and Sean, uh, who was Bryce's roommate, Sean Dixon, um, finally got Bryce to lay down in his bed. It was later found out uh, by Karen on September 14th of 2013, so after all of this had taken place. Um, Kim told Karen that Bryce had actually admitted to her Tuesday morning that he had snorted a Vyvanse pill that night before in order to stay up all night playing that Madden video game. Um, He had supposedly gotten five to ten of those pills from a friend of his. So then Tuesday night, he's acting strange. Um, They finally get him to lay down. And Kim thought at that point maybe he had snorted more of that Vyvanse, um, but she wasn't sure. And then uh, Kim and Bryce went to bed, and they slept for seven hours. So now we're into the next day, Wednesday, August 28th. After Kim and Bryce woke up that morning, Bryce did say that he was sorry for his behavior the night before, but he didn't really remember what he had been doing. At 1 p.m. that afternoon on that Wednesday, um, Bryce actually called Karen uh, and said that he was sorry he didn't return his, the text message from the night before, So Karen asked how the second day of school went, and they chatted briefly. Um, Karen told him that she would call him later that week, but at no point did Karen think he was on any drugs. Um, But again, that call was pretty brief. Okay. So then that night, um, we're at Wednesday still, at 9 p.m., Sean, who you'll remember was Bryce's roommate, called and told Karen and Mike Bryce's behavior had been strange uh, since Tuesday, He said that Bryce had been taking a pill called Vyvanse, uh, which they later found out that Vyvanse is similar to Adderall. Sean thought he took it Monday night to stay up playing video games, but he may have also taken it on Tuesday. And then later on, Karen did find out from Kim that Bryce admitted to snorting a pill Wednesday um, before heading up to her house in Chico. So at 5 p.m., uh, Bryce drove from Roseville, which was where he, he had his, his apartment with Sean, up to Chico, uh, where Kim lived, so to her house, and he arrived there at about 6.30 p.m. So uh, he's hanging out there until 11.10 p.m. when Bryce spoke with Karen on the phone. Um, he said he broke up with Kim and he wanted to drive back to his apartment in Roseville But Kim was saying that Bryce didn't look good, and so she had his car keys and wouldn't give them back. So Karen spoke to Danielle, who was Kim's roommate, and asked her if she thought Bryce was okay to drive back to his apartment in Roseville. And Danielle said yes, he seemed fine. So then Karen told Bryce that her and Mike were worried about him, um, and that they had actually spoken with Sean, and Karen was actually planning to fly up to see him the next day. Bryce told his mom not to make an airline reservation until after he talked with her. He said he had a lot to talk to his parents about. Karen said okay and asked Bryce to drive safely back to his apartment in Roseville and to call her when he got there. So that was late Wednesday night. Um, We're now into the early morning hours of Thursday, August 29th. So at 1.05 a.m., Bryce called Karen. Um... And, and Karen told Bryce, hey, get some sleep, 
call me in the morning because um, we need to talk. So, of course, you know, Karen had told him to call when he got back to his apartment. So she assumed that he was in his apartment. But later phone and cell, to- uh, cell tower records after he went missing and they got those records, they actually indicated that he was only 30 minutes south of Kim's apartment in Chico at that time. Okay. So he was not back at his apartment. So at 11 a.m. that morning, um, Mike and Kim received a voice message from their insurance um, state farm saying that they had received a roadside assistance call from Bryce at 920 that morning when he ran out of gas. Mike and Karen checked their American Express account and found a charge of $20 from a Castro tire and truck, um, which had actually brought three gallons of gas to Bryce at the Button Willow rest stop on Interstate 5 South. So at 12.20 p.m., Christian, who was that driver from um, Castro Tire and Truck, drove to the rest stop and found Bryce was still there. So Bryce called his mom and said he was okay and he was going to get gas and was about two hours away from their home in Laguna Niguel. Then at 12.32 p.m., Christian called again. Um, He called Karen again to say that he was with Bryce at Oasis Valero and that Bryce was filling up with gas. The American Express card showed a $40 debit, but also a $39.50 credit. Bryce used his debit card for $2.10 at that Oasis Valero. At 2 p.m., Karen saw that there was an American Express pending charge at an unknown shell station. So that pending charge never finalized, and then it just disappeared from any record. Yeah, I I think maybe part of the explanation on some of these credits and debits is, you know, sometimes when you use your, your credit card or debit card, It'll do like an authorization right? and then give it back to you if you don't use it. So maybe he was trying to fill up or, you know, yeah, and didn't quite use that. didn't actually proceed with the transaction. Yeah, but it could be. Yeah, there's so that second charge at that shell station, they didn't find anything out about it. It just kind of disappeared yeah. from their records. So then Mike and Karen called Bryce's iPhone, um, which rang and went to voicemail. Um, There was no response to their texts or phone calls since 12.20 p.m. that afternoon. So then at 6 p.m., Mike called the San Juan Capistrano um, California Highway Patrol office to see if they could locate Bryce along I-5 anywhere. Mike was then instructed to contact the Bakersfield California Highway Patrol office, um, which he did, and he filed an incident report at that time. Bryce's name and license plate number were run in the system, and no accident or arrest had been reported. So now we're at 7 p.m. on that night. Mike called the Orange County Sheriff Department to report Bryce missing. At 8 p.m., a deputy, Phillips, arrived at Mike and Karen's, and that's when they filed the official missing persons report. So an hour later at 9 p.m., after AT&T pinged Bryce's cell phone, so once they reported him missing, um... They discussed it with AT&T, and after a little while, AT&T actually pinged Bryce's cell phone, and the Kern County deputies actually located Bryce along Lagoon Drive, still in Buttonwillow. So if you remember, Buttonwillow was the rest area where Christian came and gave him gas. He was going to fill up his car and then head to his parents' house. So we were here at 9, nine o'clock at night, and Bryce is still in that same Spot. city in Buttonwillow. Yes, okay. a different, different place. He's on Lagoon Drive now, but still in Buttonwillow. So at that point, um, the officers actually spent 30 minutes with Bryce. Uh, They searched his vehicle and they evaluated his condition. Um, They didn't find any drugs or alcohol. 
And the officers asked what he was doing there, and Bryce said that he had left to blow off some steam and visit a friend in Laguna Niguel. So Karen spoke with the officer and asked him if Bryce was okay to drive. The officer said, quote, yes, ma'am, he is, end quote. So then Karen talked with Bryce, told him to get something to eat, and to call her before he started back down I-5 South. Okay, so <clears throat> I just want to interject real quick. Yeah. I, I know that some of the shows that we heard um, really criticize, uh, well, uh, Karen and Mike, for one, but for two law enforcement, because they say, well, they were with him right then and there. Why didn't they do something? I think in hindsight, knowing everything that they were, would know, you know, in the future, maybe they would have done something. Um, but at that time, with the information that they have, they, their hands are tied. I mean, he's not committed a criminal uh, offense. They didn't think that he was under the influence of anything, and they, they ran him through roadsides, as far as I remember. Um, and so they don't have a reason to, you know, probable cause to arrest him for anything. Um, furthermore, you know, they probably asked him enough questions to determine whether or not he was a risk to himself or others, in, in which case, if they thought that he was, they would have put him into custody for like a mental health hold, but they didn't obviously feel that at that time was necessary. Right. Now, I think people need to remember that Bryce was an adult, so it's not like he was, um, you know, part of like an Amber Alert as a child, a Silver Alert as, as, you know, an elder abuse type situation or an elder person with dementia. Um, And so they really don't have any legal, you know, recourse to take, just take him into custody. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand that because for one hindsight, right? We're looking at this from now we have all this information that they did not have at that specific point in time. Correct. They didn't know all of this backstory and the Vivance and all of that that was going on. But they spent 30 minutes with him evaluating him and said, yeah, he's fine to drive. He's not doing he's not committing a criminal act. He can stay in Button Willow for as long as he wants. We can't just arrest somebody and violate people's rights for without cause. Right. And I don't think people think about those things. And, you know, you hear a lot of people kind of blaming Mike and Karen saying, well, if that was my kid, I'd have went out there immediately. I would have went and got, you know, my kid and made sure that my kid was safe. Well, I think that's real easy for us to say, like you said, with all the information that we now know. Mm -hmm. Um, but at that time, you know, he, he still is an adult and, um, he could stay in button willow for as long as, or as little time as he wants to. Right. And so, With that, I think, um, you know, when I talked to Karen on the phone, at least, you know, I brought up the point that you had made to me when we when we were listening to a certain podcast that if at any time during any type of situation like this, you believe that your baby was in danger, you would run right out there. Nothing would stop you. And Karen said, absolutely. Your wife gets it because that is absolutely true. Had I known what I know now then yes, of course, I would have went out there. And I believe that. Of course. Yeah. I mean, but she's talking to you know she's talked to several people during this time and he's on his way to their to their home he's a few hours away um she's talked to christian who says yeah i mean he he seems fine i i gave him gas he got gas he's on his way yeah he you know he's still in button willow hours later but then she talks to deputies who say no he's perfectly fine we spent 30 minutes with him talking to him and he's he's fine and to take it a step further when she talked to kim or I'm sorry, Danielle, the roommate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would think as a reasonable person, I think I'm a reasonable person. If I was, you know, in Karen's situation and, you know, my, my son's 
girlfriend was holding the keys, knowing that they were, you know, he was going to break up with her. That's a normal, you know, teenager type relationship thing where she might not want him to leave. So really, I don't think that there's anything going through Karen's mind at that time would lead her to believe that there's anything going on other than an argument where where Kim doesn't want him to leave. Right, exactly. So because she she's hearing this, she's hearing from Kim, you know, oh, I don't want him to leave. And he's saying, no, I'm fine, but she won't give me my keys. So then, you know, she takes it a step further and says, well, let me get somebody else's opinion that's not directly involved in this relationship or this argument that's going on. So she talks to Danielle and Danielle doesn't take sides. She just says, yeah, he seems fine to drive to me. So then, I mean, that's what Karen's thinking. Like right. he's, he's okay. Um, yeah, they're a little bit worried um, about what's going on because he said, you know, hey, I have to talk to you about something, but doesn't really go into detail about what that is. So there's a little bit of worry in the back of their mind, but everybody they've spoken with says, uh, yeah, he's fine to drive. He's fine to, to go. Um, we don't see, he's not saying he's going to harm himself or anyone else. Um, he's going to get on the interstate and head to your house and he'll be there in a few hours. So, yeah. So I think their reasonable expectation at that point is, you know, Bryce is going to show up at home soon. Exactly. So, yeah. So uh, Karen, again, like I said, she talked to Bryce. She told him to get something to eat and then call before he headed, you know, headed back out um, on the interstate. Then, uh, so that was all kind of at nine, nine o'clock um, in the evening. Now we're at 10 o'clock at night. Um, Christian, if you remember from the Castro Tire place that came to give um, Bryce gas earlier that morning, actually called Karen and said, hey, I'm, I'm returning your call. Um, I saw I missed your call because Karen had tried to call him back at 6 p.m. and he missed the call. So he said, hey, I'm just returning your call. Um, so then Karen filled uh, him in on the fact that Bryce still wasn't home and that he had just been found on Lagoon Drive in Buttonwillow. So Christian, sounds like he's actually a really great guy going out of his way to try to help out. Um, he actually said, hey, uh, I'm going to drive over there just to see if, if Bryce is still there. So at 10.31 p.m., um, Bryce actually called Karen and said that he was with Christian, still on Lagoon Drive. Karen told him to get something to eat again before driving, um, but Bryce said he wasn't hungry, but he would get something to drink. So uh, 25 minutes or so later at 10.58 p.m., uh, Karen called and told Bryce to keep his phone on because she's going to call him during his drive home. She told him it's about three hours and that they'll expect him at their home at about 2 a.m. So then at 11 p.m., uh, Christian actually followed Bryce, uh, followed behind Bryce on I-5 South and called Karen to say, now he's driving okay. Um, he, there was a point when he cut off a truck and then he was traveling below the speed limit, but Christian followed him for another 10 miles south and said that he seemed fine. His driving was, was fine at that time. Okay. Yeah. So, so I mean, he's a young, young driver. It's yeah. probably not, you know, um, intentional, uh, but 10 miles worth of good driving seems like he's fine enough. Exactly. And that's what Christian thought. So Christian followed him 10 miles south and then turned around and headed home himself. So now we are into the early morning hours of Friday, August 30th. Um, it's 12.16 a.m. and Karen called Bryce's cell phone, but he didn't answer. At 1.33 a.m., Bryce called Karen back and said he's coming home, but he took a detour, but he's now back on I-5 South. At 1.39 a.m., Karen called Bryce and asked him to tell her any road signs so that she can kind of gauge where he's at along I-5. But Bryce told her he didn't see any signs, um, 
And so Karen said, well, just drive safe. So at 1.50 a.m., uh, Mike called Bryce and asked if he was okay or if he sees any signs. Bryce told uh, him at that time that his phone GPS says he will be at their home at 3.25 a.m. So Mike asked if he stopped anywhere because his arrival time is almost an hour and a half later than they expected. Bryce said yes, that he had stopped and was sorry that he didn't call them. So Mike just told him if he stops again, he needs to call home to let them know. So at 2.09 a.m., Bryce called Karen. He said he had pulled off of I-5 and he was in a suburban area. He was tired and he was going to sleep in his car. Karen says, lock your doors and call when you wake up and before you get on I-5 South. Which, I mean, that makes total sense. You and I both know that driving tired can be worse than driving intoxicated in some instances. So if your kid tells you, hey, I'm tired, yes, you're going to tell them. Especially you're in a suburban area, pull over into a lit area, lock your doors and get some sleep. Do not try to drive when you're tired. It's so dangerous. I think anybody with driving experience can say how dangerous it is I mean, I've driven tired. tired And like, it's, yeah, it's like, oh, wait, I don't even remember the last five miles. It's time to pull over and close my eyes because I'm tired. And so that's all she's thinking is, you know, I talked to him. He's fine. He's tired. He needs to just pull over and get some sleep. So that was the the last time she spoke with him. Then at 8 a.m., that morning, a California Highway Patrol trooper from San Juan Capistrano, um, Trooper Kerman, comes to Bright, uh, sorry, Mike and Karen's house in Laguna Niguel to ask if their car had been stolen. The car had been found at Castaic Lake, but there was no one with the vehicle. So Mike and Karen explained that their son had the car and should have been home hours ago. Then in two hours later at 10 a.m., California Highway Patrol Trooper Callahan from the Newhall area called uh, Mike and Karen to say the car had been found on the main boat access road at Castaic Lake, um, but it had been in an accident. Uh, The car hit front first and landed on its side. A back window had broken out, had been broken out, and a small amount of blood was found. Bryce's cell phone, wallet, and laptop computer were found inside the car. He also had a duffel bag that may have been outside of the car. Trooper Callahan advised the car had been towed to Golden State Towing and that Mike and Karen needed to advise their insurance company. He did tell Mike and Karen at that point to stay put where they were. At 11 a.m., Mike drives up to the area where Bryce's car was found and was directed to the Castaic Lake Sheriff's Office. Uh, Apparently, the case was being transferred from the California Highway Patrol to the L.A. Sheriff Parks Bureau office that morning. Searches were conducted all day, until 8.30 p.m. that night. Um, they, were, they did searches on foot, uh, by boat, helicopter, plane, dogs, and divers. Bryce's computer and phone were returned to Mike at the end of that day. So now we're into Saturday, August 31st. At 3 p.m., Sergeant Wallace advised Karen that Bryce is now being listed as a critical missing person. In addition, the search is downgraded to an informal search. At no time up to this point was the media notified. Karen was told on that Saturday that a Homicide Bureau detective would not be available until Tuesday. Mike contacted the Homicide Bureau but was told again that that there wouldn't be anybody available and they never heard anything um, back from them until Tuesday. Detective Carnes issued the official missing person flyer and press release that afternoon. So I think I forgot to mention. So they had reported him missing, if you remember, when he was on his way home because they couldn't get a hold of him all afternoon. Yep. And I believe it was with the Orange County Sheriff. 
And once the deputies actually spent those 30 minutes with him, ascertaining whether he was okay to drive and all of that, um, they actually took the missing person's uh, report out of the system. He was no longer listed as a missing person because he had been contacted. He seemed okay. Um, so then here on Saturday, they had to... Um, Generate a new one? Yeah, issue that official missing persons flyer and press press release and everything that afternoon. Um, so at that point, uh, Mike and Karen began making and distributing their own missing persons flyers and reaching out on their own through Facebook, family and friends, um, however they could just to get the word out. They began their own searches with family, friends, and volunteers in the recreation area and Castaic. So now uh, into Sunday, September 1st, horseback searches were being conducted as part of routine exercises on the east side of Lake Hughes Road. Uh, Wednesday, September 4th, Mike and his brother Glenn dropped off Bryce's socks from his apartment and his dental records at the Homicide Bureau in Commerce for Detective Carnes. And I'm guessing that's... Um, Obviously, the dental records, you know, is for identification, but the socks for the scent dogs, because they were using dogs to track him. So I'm sure they used a piece of clothing. So they dropped his socks off there. Then on Monday, September 9th, Sergeant Martindale and Detective Rodriguez went to Mike and Karen's home to hear their story. And then they actually, at that point, took back the computer and phone that they had given them. On Wednesday and Thursday, September 11th and 12th, um, they did bloodhound searches, and they the bloodhound actually followed Bryce's trail from the car down to the dam, across the dam, and down to the lower lagoon, across the water, and out of the park to Castaic Road. His trail ends there. Two dogs on different days both followed that same path. Divers went into the lake on the north side of the dam and in the, the lagoon at the bottom of the spillway. Um, cadaver dogs were also used on Thursday. So I know we've heard other information regarding this, the scent path, if you want to talk about uh, that. Yeah, so <clears throat> one of the, the common misconceptions is that uh, Bryce's scent was you know tracked all the way down that same path that you just mentioned and then to a local truck stop that was nearby. Um, when I talked to Mike and Karen, they said that that actually never happened. It was never tracked to a truck stop. That's that's not accurate. Um, it did stop where, where you just said on that road. Um, there was a local truck stop nearby, so there's a lot of speculation that he made it there. But, um, you know, those those dogs tracked him a great distance, and for it to stop, you know, within Castaic Park, um, you know, is important because it, it doesn't indicate anywhere near that he made it to that truck stop. And, you know, part of that theory is that he went to the truck stop and he was kidnapped by a trucker or caught a ride and wanted to disappear or something. And, um, that scent was never tracked to that local truck stop. Yeah. I think it's important to, um, dispel that, you know, rumor or or common thought that that actually never happened. Um, and, and the fact that it was tracked the same exact path by two different dogs on two different days says a lot for sure. Yeah. Um, so now we are into Tuesday, September 17th. The last time Bryce was heard from was August 30th, so we're a couple weeks in now. Um, Mike and Karen met with the Homicide Bureau detectives in Commerce. Uh, the detectives went over the case to date and delivered the information on the Bloodhound search, as well as a drop-in search of the upper area above Castaic Lake. Their conclusion at that time was that Bryce walked out of the recreation area and did not appear to have a serious injury. Karen mentioned that in addition to the L.A. Sheriff's Department involvement, there were volunteers that posted flyers throughout Castaic, Valencia, and Santa Clarita, as well as south on I-5. Flyers uh, were also posted in Buttonwillow on a couple of occasions. 
Um, Team Amber Rescue organized volunteer searches in and around Castaic on September 14th and 15th. There were some wash areas in Castaic that were searched during the day. Um, They also searched Valencia during the day. And then they did night searches in Santa Clarita. Uh, Craig Sherman talked to the homeless in Castaic that he knew um, just to see if he could get any information. There have been unconfirmed sightings in Valencia, San Fernando, Oxnard, uh, Canyon Country, Tijuana. I'm probably like butchering that. I don't know how to say it. Tijuana. Probably, maybe. It's T E H A C H A P I. Port Orford, Oregon, Tempe, Arizona, and Blythe, Alaska. Um, there have also been um, leads followed up on from psychics at Castaic Lake, Castaic RC Airplane Field, and in Santa Paula uh, Wash behind that airport. Um, there was also a lead that was. Um, followed up on from Facebook uh, to Riverside that that didn't pan out either. So that's kind of a timeline um, of of what happened. I know that um, Mike and Karen have um, hired a private investigator and they've actually done dives in the lake as well since that time, um, but nothing was found. Okay, yeah, it, it, all very peculiar information for sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's just a very interesting case. Um, you know, because people don't just, you know, he's out there somewhere. People don't just disappear. disappear out of nowhere. Right. Exactly. So he is out there somewhere. Um, but you know, we, we did, um, ask Mike and Karen some other questions as well that I kind of want to go over. Yeah, too. please do. Yeah. So we asked, um, Mike and Karen if they could tell us a little bit more about Bryce's relationship with Kim, um, and if they still keep in contact with Kim and they told us that, Kim and Bryce started dating in his freshman year, and like I said before, Kim had come for a visit over the summer after that first year of school. Um, The two of them seemed happy together and had fun. After Bryce went missing, um, Karen placed the contents of his apartment in a storage facility, and Kim offered to drive the contents down to Mike and Karen a couple weeks later. Uh, They were, of course, all hopeful that Bryce would have been found by then. Mike and Karen were in touch with Kim for several months following as she was attending school in Chico, which was about eight hours away from their home. They did take over the Facebook page administrator role from Kim, um, since, of course, they're the parents and are handling any day-to-day information with Bryce's missing persons case. Kim did get on with her life, and they wish her well. They no longer are in contact with Kim, um, but they do continue to manage that social media and the tip line phone for any possible leads. We also spoke with them... um, You know, we posed this question to them. Obviously, there will never be anything to bring you back to a sense of normal. Is there anything specific that has helped you heal, focus on your marriage, or get into a normal routine? And they said that Bryce saw what their new life was in retirement when he visited over winter break in 2012. And then he spent the summer with them in 2013 before his sophomore year was to start. And they believe he would want them to enjoy their life. um, So they hang on to that. They've always enjoyed traveling and spending time with family and friends. They said it took a couple of years to travel after Bryce went missing because they didn't want to leave home for any length of time, um, fearful that he would come home and they wouldn't be there. They said their new normal is that they live with a permanent hole in their hearts. Um, They still have hope for that miracle that Bryce is out there and he will be found and reunited with us. So, you know, we also asked them uh, what advice do they have for people who find themselves in situations similar to theirs um, to kind of help them keep going every day? And they said, you know, that they provided us this pretty lengthy answer. 
Um, but they said the initial phase of Bryce's disappearance required each of them to kind of handle different aspects of the situation. Mike was primarily focused on the search and discussions with the L.A. Sheriff's Department, while Karen stayed home and handled the social media and tips line. Of course, each parent's going to react differently at times throughout this process. Anger, frustration, and sadness all hit at different times and in different degrees for each parent. Um, they did have to seek counseling to help them understand why they seem to be at odds sometimes, even though they both wanted that common thing, which was to bring their ho- their son home. Karen did receive a call a few days after Bryce went missing from a wonderful woman named Pam who works for the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And initially, Pam shared this, and it's helped them in a small way. She said to remember that they didn't cause it, they cannot change it, and they cannot control it. So that center, they said, is a good source for people to lean on. Uh, Pam and Karen actually remain in contact to this day. Sometimes just a phone call with someone who has walked in your shoes can help. Um, She said they remain in touch with another couple who have a son the same age who also went missing in Northern California about six months prior to Bryce. Uh, Mother to mother, they feel the same pain. Also, like I said before, they have a private investigator and they mentioned that having a good private investigator that helps the family, not trying to take their money or anything like that, um, but really understands missing persons cases uh, has helped them. Of course, they said every scenario is different uh, when a child goes missing, and every person is going to handle the day-to-day situations and stress differently, Um, but for them, distraction helps. Uh, Even after 10 years, you never know when something is going to trigger a thought or memory and it hits you hard. Um, So many emotions initially, they attempted to reach out to their church, but didn't really get the support they were looking for, Um, you know, but sometimes people do find uh, strength in their faith. Um, and of course, they said they, they have each other and many years of loving memories together with Bryce that they're thankful for. And they also have um, a great support system in their family and friends. And and even Karen and Mike both mentioned that, you know, when I, I sent the questions over and when I talked to them on the phone about this, you know, even though they're, both of their goals is to find answers on this, um, they both mentioned how difficult it was through the process of talking to me and emailing us, you know, the answers and, and even just correcting some of the information that was out there. Um, you know, that was really difficult and brought up some painful memories. So I just want to give a huge thanks to both of them for even entertaining the idea to allow us to try to set that record straight and to provide accurate information instead of just whatever we find on the internet, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's what we sought to do when we started this podcast was really put good, accurate information out there. And there's no better way to get that than actually speaking with the people who are directly involved and are going through this, right? Right. You know, and I don't think that we mentioned it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, one of the things that um, Karen thought was important to relay was also, you know, one of the things in some of these podcasts there, they said, well, she really should have known something was wrong because he was giving away his Xbox and he gave away his, you know, um, earrings. Well, he didn't give away the Xbox. He gave away a Madden game. He gave away earrings. All, both of those things that he gave away, Karen didn't even know. Mike didn't even know about this until after Br- Bryce was missing. Exactly. So, that you know, had they known that, sure, maybe that would have triggered something to say, well, okay, there's some weird behavior here. We need to fly out there anyway, even though he told me not to. Absolutely. But they didn't even know until after the fact. Exactly. Um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And and we have, I have a little bit of information on that too as we go through. But yeah, they didn't know 
all of that information at the time. A lot of this, a lot of these things were learned after the fact. So I know you, you asked when you um, spoke with them to kind of tell us about their experience with law enforcement, victim advocates and search and rescue, um, and also the media. And then any advice they have to provide to first responders um, or those people that work with victims or detectives um, that kind of might help them better serve their victims, particularly with such a high profile case. And they said, as with any complex situation, their experiences were not always pleasant. Some things could have been handled better, but overall they had good interactions with law enforcement, search and rescue teams, private investigators, and the different media representatives. Most were very respectful and only interested in finding our son. A few factors made the initial investigation more difficult. Bryce's car wound up on the access ramp for the Castaic Lake Recreation Park. The L.A. Sheriff's Department was just creating an office on those grounds when this happened. Um, The California Highway uh, Patrol originally responded to the accident report, but then the case was transferred to the new Lake uh, L.A. Sheriff's Department office just before Mike arrived at around 11 a.m. on Friday the 30th. That office was not equipped to handle the phone or laptop forensics, so they gave them back to Mike at 8.30 that night when he left. Um, Because it was the Labor Day weekend, it took four days to get out the missing person flyer, and then the case was not investigated by the L.A. Sheriff's Department homicide in commerce, um, the adult missing person missing persons case handler until nine days after he went missing. The detectives then took back the phone and laptop and organized the bloodhound searches. Another factor was the extreme heat. Uh, This did prevent thermal imaging by helicopters and degraded trace evidence. So yeah, so there are some factors. I mean, there was a time lapse. There was a time issue between when he went missing and when they really started investigating it. Yeah. And I know just from doing investigations, it is so important for, you know, survivors and victims of crimes, especially in, in, you know, severe cases such as missing persons or homicides or sex assaults to have, you know, one, one detective they can lean on. And when you get bounced around from place to place, you, you almost feel like nobody's really doing a thorough job because you start wondering, well, did that agency do this? Right. Do, you know, or is this what was a lost? new agency? Yeah. You know, who who did what? And, and and you really just start to wonder how thorough the job is being done. And, sure. and even though it probably it probably is fine, um, it probably is getting done. There probably is communication, but maybe not so much with the victims in those cases where they feel as though they're they're not getting a you know a good enough job done. Exactly. You start to wonder, well, what was missed going from this agency to this agency right. to this agency? Yeah, it's it does make things more difficult. And and it is important to mention that it doesn't matter how solid of a criminal case in, you know, that investigators have, um mistakes are going to be made cuz you know, we're human and we mm-hmm. make mistakes and the only thing we could do as detectives or investigators is learn from them and hopefully not make them again. Um, so, but it doesn't matter how seasoned you are, how good you are at your job, mistakes are made. And anyway, you know, just this jurisdiction thing was probably very frustrating for them. I'm sure. Um, so we kind of talked a little bit about this before, but we asked Mike and Karen, um, you know, we, there's a lot of podcast hosts and web sleuths that, you know, cast a lot of judgment their way, like we talked about before, um, for what they believe was a lack of response when Bryce's behavior was suspicious, specifically during the time he was in Buttonwillow. Uh, some people say if it were their kid in that situation, they would have immediately drove to Bryce to bring him home. And so we asked them, what was, what is their response to those people? Karen spoke to the Kern County deputy when they located Bryce after pinging his cell phone. 
and we kind of went through those details from the timeline. Bryce's location in Buttonwillow, which is three hours north of Laguna Niguel, where Mike and Karen lived, was not known until 9.30 p.m. on Thursday the 29th when the Kern County deputies talked with him and searched his car. The deputies said he was fine and safe to drive. He told Karen that he was packing up the car and would stop to get a soft drink before heading south. An hour later, he was still there, but the tow truck driver talked to him and led him back to the I-5 South. Mike and Karen had a few conversations with him, but never knew his exact location at any time during his drive south from Buttonwillow. When he called at 2 a.m. to say he had to stop and rest, he didn't tell them where he was. When asked, he said he didn't notice the road signs at the exit and had stopped in a residential area. Karen told him to lock his doors, get some sleep, and call before getting on the I-5 South to drive home. So they had asked him where he was. They didn't know where he was to go get him. They didn't know. They didn't know that he was still in Buttonwillow until they had filed the missing persons report and deputies actually found him there. They didn't know that he was still there an hour later until Christian went out and checked on him. They didn't know that he was there. And then he was driving south on the I-5. But they asked him multiple times, can you please tell me, you know, any road signs? Where are you? And he told them every time, I don't know. I didn't pay attention or I didn't see any road signs. And so I don't really know like how you're going to pinpoint where, where he's at. Like they're not going to ping his cell phone. He's not considered a missing person anymore. So there, there's not any way to ping his exact location. I mean, they don't know where they're going to head up from their house three hours South and what go where they don't know where he's exactly. They don't know where he's at. And so, um, yeah. So, Um, Karen also said that Bryce being 19 was a factor in how law enforcement handled that case. Um, And we kind of touched on this, too. He was too old for an amber alert and too young for a silver alert. He was considered an adult. And after their Kern County deputies talked with him, they canceled that missing persons report. Um, His behavior didn't convince them that a mental health hold was necessary. They like I said, they spent 30 minutes with him ascertaining, you know, if he was okay, And they determined that he was. And of course, you're going to trust that. Law enforcement officer, mm-hmm. whenever, exactly. whenever well, exactly. they tell you he's fine. They, you know, that's, that's what they do. That's, you know, they're experts in that. So, and so this is the other question um, that you kind of went into before about Bryce giving away his belongings. We didn't mention that in the timeline, but you know, we asked, when did you find out that Bryce w- was giving away his belongings? And so Karen said, we didn't find out ab- about Bryce giving Sean, his roommate, his Xbox game and diamond stud earrings until the weekend after he went missing. Sean never mentioned Bryce giving him anything. Um, Kim is the one that told Karen about those items. So Karen asked her to please get them back from Sean, um, which, which she did. And then Karen did receive them back. Um, when she went up to empty Bryce's belongings from the apartment the weekend of September 14th. So in the days uh, leading up to Bryce's disappearance, he had given Sean his Madden game and some diamond stud earrings that were a gift from Karen. Um, But when Sean called and spoke with Mike and Karen and told them, hey, uh, Bryce has been acting strange. Uh, I think he may be taking Vyvanse. Um, he never mentioned him giving away his things. So nobody knew that until after Bryce was already missing. So I know a lot of people say, well, I mean, he's acting so strange and he's giving away all these personal belongings. And, you know, why didn't you do something? Well, they didn't even know. Like, what are they supposed to do? They had no idea. So I think that's very important to put that out there as well, because I think people don't realize that or they, I guess, thought that Mike and Karen knew about that before they actually did. 
So um, we also asked uh, Mike that about the phenomenal outpouring of support that he received from everyone, which ranged from search and rescue efforts to donations. But they experienced quite a bit of backlash from people when that episode of Disappeared um, didn't air portions of Mike's interview. They didn't air the full thing, you know, with television, things are edited. And so there was an interview conducted with Mike about the outpouring of support from the community, and not all of that was aired. In fact, I don't think any of it was aired. Yeah, so there's specifically the part where Mike expressed his gratitude for everyone's support. And so we asked him to tell us about the support they received and that if there's anything that he would like to share about that experience. And Mike said, the support provided by those who lived in and around Castaic was outstanding. It is not an easy area to search. However, area residents came out to search on foot in extremely hot weather and rough terrain. The Castaic Starbucks became a mini command center for volunteers. Food and water were provided by local establishments. Mike had a window broken out of his car by vandals, actually, while searching off of Lake Hughes Road, and the local auto shop came out and replaced it free of charge. Team Amber and class kids groups did organized foot searches of the Castaic Recreation Area and surrounding communities. Family and friend support never wavered. Mike's friend Bob drove two to three hours each way every day to help Mike search in the Castaic um, area during the first couple of weeks. Karen's brother Glenn came from Florida on day five to assist Mike with the search and did most of the driving. He and his wife stayed for several weeks helping. Karen's brother Brian helped with the social media aspects, the Find Bryceless Pisa Facebook page, and vigils and billboards. Their private investigator, Denise Savistano has helped them manage the tip line and continues to follow up on the leads and potential sightings. She also helped with that sonar boat search that I talked about. Um, I'm sorry, I, I said it was a dive, but it was actually a sonar boat search of the lake back in 2015 when the Castaic Lake water levels were really low. Their private investigator helped organize that. So they did the sonar search of the area, but didn't find anything. So kind of to, to close things out, when we reached out to Mike and Karen, um, they said they were very clear that they didn't want this interview to be about them. They want it to be about Bryce. So we said, whether it's been discussed before or not, is there anything you want to add that might help bring answers? And this is what they said. They said, the reality is that we probably will never know what really happened. The most likely scenario is that he had some kind of psychotic break caused by the use of Vivance, possibly while consuming alcohol on Monday night. This most likely caused his erratic behavior starting Tuesday night, but escalating on Wednesday. The questions that remain unanswered are whether he tried to commit suicide, had an elaborate plan to run away, had amnesia or confusion after the crash and hitched a ride to somewhere, or he was the victim of foul play. No evidence was found to suggest foul play. Certainly, he could have run away with the car, credit card, la uh, laptop, phone, and clothes, which is a lot easier than the journey he took to wind up in Castaic on Friday morning. The bottom line is that the reason this happened will not help us find him. After 10 years without a single confirmed sighting, he most likely will not be found and might have actually perished in the Castaic Lake surrounding area. So that's kind of what they feel. Yeah, and you know, I have to agree with the mother's intuition. Um, yeah. You know, that moms know. Uh, but, you know, I just want to add on to that, you know, my thought. And when I was talking to Karen and Mike, they shared a lot of stuff that they don't want us to share publicly, but they, they did share some um, uh, stuff that Bryce made for them. And, and mm -hmm. Bryce was such a good son. He was always making them birthday cards and telling them, 
you know, he loves them and everything. So, uh, it, it really, was, it was, he was a sweet kid. Yeah. yeah. And I just don't think for a minute that Bryce had an elaborate plan to just disappear and not go see his parents off or not tell them. And I, I think that if he was suicidal, I think he would have reached out to his parents because he had such a very close relationship to them. Um, that you know, I just I just feel like he probably you know they would have known they would have seen the warning signs they would have known and he would have reached out to them. Mm-hmm. That's what that's the that's what I think. So, um, you know I I agree with Karen in in you know her um, uh, you know description of how she feels um, because like I said I mean she's she's mom and she knows best. Exactly, and you know who knows I mean everybody has different reactions to medication, right? I mean this is. Vyvanse similar to Adderall, something that he wasn't normally taking or hadn't taken um, and had just recently, it sounds like, started using to kind of stay up to to play these video games and, you know, didn't realize the effects that that could have, especially if it's mixed with alcohol. So none of us really know what that could have done. It could have created a psychotic break. That's very plausible. So we, we just don't know. Right. And so if you have any information about this case and you want to share that, um, there is a, a Facebook page that's called Find Bryce Les Pisa um, on Facebook. And then they have an email account that you can email your tips to find Bryce Les Pisa at gmail.com. And also the reward poster lists the phone number 949 Thank you for listening to our very first episode of Mysteries and Mimosas. I encourage each of you to head on over to our website at mysteriesandmimosas.net. There you'll find information on each of our episodes to include source material and photos. That's right. And if you are interested, take a look at our Instagram page. Um, it's at Mysteries and Mimosas podcast. And there you'll see the awesome glasses that we drink our mimosas out of in every episode uh, made by Dragon Glassware. Super sexy glasses. I love them. Uh, they have a, an entire collection that you can go check out at dragonglassware.com. And if you enter the promo code found on our website, they'll give you 10% off your entire order.